News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm Christina Greer with my co-host here, Katie Honan. Hi, Katie Honan. Hi, Chrissy. Harry Siegel is taking a much, much deserved respite. So he'll be joining us. Um, oh, actually, after we go on break, Katie, we're supposed to make the announcement that FAQ is going on a small hiatus for a few weeks, and then we'll be back refreshed, recharged, and ready to rock and roll uh, post-election. So you all will be hearing from us election night, August 23rd. That's election night for our members of uh, the U.S. House of Representatives and our state senators. And so we're mm-hmm. going to have our election night guest, Ben Max, who's always with us on election night. And then we'll be back in our regularly scheduled programming. Um, so this week, it's my great honor and pleasure to have my state senator. I have to say it with a fancy accent. My state senator, Zellner Myrie, joining us today. Hi, Senator. I am so excited to be here. Let me just say before we kick off that I was with FAQ before y'all blew up, (laughs) before you had the partnership with the city, uh, and now y'all are just like official tissue. So I'm (laughs) glad glad to be back uh, with with all of you. We're so excited. I mean, listen, we had to bring on Katie Honan to make us respectable, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't just be Chrissy and Harry out in these streets. I had to introduce Google Docs. Right. We needed to jazz it up a little bit. So we had to bring in a Queens native. Um, So we're so excited. I wanted to have you on this week, one, because I think that you're the greatest. And you just, I'm going to say a hot take. You might be my favorite state senator. How about that? Sorry, Gustavo Rivera. Um, But I read your op-ed in the New York Daily News. And Katie and I thought that it would be a great way for you to kind of contextualize what you see is going on, not just in your district, but in New York more broadly, uh, and where we should be going. And also, if you could talk to us a little bit uh, about where you were earlier this morning, uh, signing in um, with the governor as she signed in some legislation and sort of walk us through that. Great. Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll start with the with the, the op-ed um, that was in the Daily News the conversation around public safety uh, is one that is top of mind, uh, not just for folks in my district, as you mentioned, Dr. Greer, but uh, th- throughout the entire city and, and, and frankly, throughout the, the country. Uh, and it is a conversation that uh, has become uh, increasingly political, uh, increasingly divisive, uh, and increasingly devoid of facts and context. And what I tried to do in that op-ed uh, was to work on that last piece, just to, to contextualize um, uh, why uh, members of my party, uh, people who are uh, in power now, should be leaning into the public safety conversation and not running away from it uh, for a, a host of reasons. And uh, let me step back and give folks the demographics of the district that I represent. Uh, so I had the 20th Senate District in central Brooklyn, where I was born and raised, where I still live, where I went to school. Uh, uh, it has been my whole life uh, in this district. And uh, we have Crown Heights, Prospect Lefferts Gardens, East Flatbush, Prospect Heights, Brownsville, uh, Park Slope, South Slope, Gowanus, and Sunset Park. In the new district, uh, I unfortunately lose the neighborhood of Brownsville and I lose the neighborhood of Sunset Park uh, and I gain Windsor Terrace and more of Crown Heights. Uh, but this district has seen its fair share of crime. Uh, we have seen our fair share of shootings. Uh, we are experiencing currently deep fear and anxiety. And when I'm out on the streets talking to people, 
Uh, I don't run away from what we did in 2019 as it relates to criminal justice reform. I, I try to contextualize it and I try to tell them uh, uh, the reason why we did it and how that is not related to the uptick in the crimes that we're seeing today. Um, and what I try to do is tell people, look, we've seen this movie before. In 1994, when the crime bill was passed, there was an uptick in crime. Communities of color were experiencing that crime disproportionately. And there were leaders in communities of color that said, we need to be harsher on our penalties and we got to do something about the crime. And it wasn't until 20, 30 years later that as a country, we collectively said, well, maybe we went a bit too far and we made a mistake. We saw that movie with Stop and Frisk. It was something that everyone thought that we needed to do to bring down crime. We saw that at its apex in the Bloomberg administration, so the decline that began at the end of it, and of course, uh, throughout the de Blasio administration, that at the ending of Stop and Frisk, crime continued to go down. Uh, and it, But for the constitutional ruling uh, by Judge Scheinlin, um, uh, we might still be seeing that today. And so I think we are in the same cycle here, where we are witnessing an uptick in crime. People want to see their leaders do something about it. And the easiest thing to do, the most politically expedient thing to do, um, is to blame bail reform or to blame someone else uh, for the uptick instead of having the hard conversations about what it means to tackle public safety. So I'm hoping that this will provide an alternative narrative than what we've been seeing out of certain corners um, uh, of, of our leadership. And uh, let's see, let's see how we take it from here. Now, why did you feel like this was something that you needed to herald? Because I think for a lot of uh, voters, unfortunately, a lot of citizens don't understand the difference between local, state and federal electeds and government and how this shakes out. And so a lot of people would think of crime as maybe a local issue, right? Why is it my city council member, the person who's spearheading this? Why do you feel as a state senator, this is something that you just couldn't sit on the sidelines and, and, and sort of let pass by? Yeah, I think for a couple of reasons. One is uh, a lot of our criminal legal law, it's state law. It's not federal, it's not city. Uh, it is state law. Uh, and it is something that is wholly, um, in many respects, within uh, my jurisdiction. Uh, I also worked on uh, many of the reforms uh, that are being attacked now, um, I think wrongly, uh, but, but, but being attacked nonetheless. Uh, so I think it's important for, for me not to run from that um, and to, to lean into it and to explain to folks uh, what's happening. Um, uh, but I also, you know, going again back to, to, to contextualizing, um, you know, when someone throws out a word like dangerousness uh, to the average person, that sounds good. Uh, it sounds like, well, yeah, dangerous people should not uh, be out. Um, and when we have uh, our leader, you know, when the mayor is saying this at a press conference, uh, when others are pushing for this. And let me just be clear that this isn't just about Mayor Adams. De Blasio also was a proponent of dangerousness. Um, uh, his former police commissioner penned an op-ed in the New York Times calling for a dangerousness um, standard. And I call that out um, as well. Um, you know, we have uh, those individuals say, well, 49 other states have a dangerousness standard. Why doesn't New York um, have one? And why are you the anomaly? But when we talk about a national uptick in crime, they ignore that uh, and they ignore all 49 other states. They ignore that the other states that have dangerousness standards have also experienced an uptick 
Um, uh, and so I just think that there is a dishonesty that is happening in this conversation. And I'm trying to inject um, uh, what I believe to be the, the, the best path forward for an honest discussion. So that is a perfect segue, you know, mentioning Mayor Adams, and I know you went on a tweet thread, and I, I believe that's what prompted this op-ed from his announcement last week, you know, a press conference. It was sort of an interesting press conference because, again, it's state, uh, it's it's not under his control, the, the large problem that he finds with bail reform. Um, but, I, you know, what was so compelling about what you wrote is that, you know, a lot of times when I hear this conversation around people's fear and, and people's distrust of bail reform, they oftentimes represent or live in areas that actually don't have high crime. It's more of this fear, this projection. Um, but, you know, you write in your op-ed that you you represent areas of the city that have high crime, but you said, you know, here, and I'll quote it from here, that every day I speak with constituents who feel both over-policed and uh, under-protected. So I guess if you want to talk a little bit about that more, um, the broader look at how do you drive down crime, it's not just arresting people and keeping them in jail, uh, until they have a trial forever, but it's it's more of a larger look at it. Uh, that's right, Katie. And this th- this is what's so frustrating to me about this, that people suggest that because we want a fair and just system, that we don't care about victims and we don't care about crime. And these are folks lecturing me on public safety. I'm like, yo, I grew up in the hood in Brooklyn. I, I'm still outside. I'm still in the hood. And You can't lecture me about what public safety means um, when I'm talking to my constituents and the folks that I represent every day about the issue. Um, I think we also mentioned in the op-ed that there isn't a monolithic view um, in our district and in our community about what public safety should be. Some folks are proponents of higher arrest, lock them up, throw away the key, um, and others have been on the worst end of that, having their entire lives, their families derailed because of one single stay at Rikers Island. Um, you know, I think it's important that we have both of these views elevated and properly discussed. You know, uh, there is uh, deep sensationalism. Every time there is a crime that shocks the conscience, uh, they use an, uh, that as an opportunity to attack the reforms. But when people die in city custody, at the humanitarian crisis that is Rikers Island, uh, that is not accompanied with the same level of outrage um, and the same level of attention to see how we can rectify that problem. Because make no mistake, uh, the proponents of increasing the amount of incarceration are saying exactly that more people should be at the humanitarian crisis in Rikers, and that is how we solve the problem. And to those folks, I'd say, we could drive down crime with incarceration, We could drive down crime to zero if we incarcerated every single New Yorker. Uh, But that, of course, is a nonsensical approach um, uh, to to, to how we do public safety. We have to have a combination of accountability and investment. We can do both. And I think we've been trying uh, to do that in my district, um, you know, in the precincts that I cover, uh, some of which had in the past some of the highest rates of violence in the city. Shootings have been going down two years in a row. Uh, This is in Brownsville, in Crown Heights, in East Flatbush. Uh, This is something, a story that is not told. And I think it's something that we should be focusing on to see what is being done, what type of collaboration between elected officials, community leaders, the district attorney's office, law enforcement. How are all of those pieces working together to bring down crime? I think we are on a good path here in Brooklyn. Certainly one crime is one too many. So I don't accept the current numbers that we're at, but we are trending in a different way. And I would encourage 
the people who are attacking the reforms to look at what we've done uh, so that we can potentially replicate it elsewhere. And could you also speak for a moment on another point you make that when the mayor Adams said no one talks about the victims and how that isn't true because there's a lot of resources for victims and you yourself have been working to make more resources available to victims. So if you want to talk a little bit about, bit about that and, and then the work that is being done. Yeah, so this is, um, you know, it's a, a, a it's a rhetorical flourish that the mayor has used uh, several times. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm really disturbed by it because um, uh, one, the, the, you know, the mayor has a, a platform that a lot of people listen to. And I'm not talking about like the political class, though, you know, folks like us, regular everyday people, they see him on the five o'clock news, the 6 p.m. news, the 10 p.m. news, uh, and they take what he says incredibly seriously. They take it as gospel. And that's good. We should be listening to our mayor. We elect our leaders to lead. Um, what is disturbing is that the suggestion uh, uh, that no one talks about victims uh, then, uh, um, I think, muddies the conversation uh, that any reform, any attempt at fairness, any attempt at justice is an attack on victims, uh, which is, of course, an untenable position for anybody to hold. And I think that's part of why uh, the mayor has used it um, uh, as a rhetorical tool or a rebuttal uh, to, to, to the reforms that we've made. But if you look at the numbers, young Black men make up the majority of victims, but they make up only 9% of individuals that receive victim compensation from the state. That is a shockingly low number. Uh, and that's partly due to the system's failure to do outreach and to provide enough resources in our communities. I have introduced a bill that would increase the resources uh, for victims of violence. It would uh, have a greater role for the Office of Victim Services uh, to play in this process. It would reduce the necessity for people to have to go to the cops in order to get their victim compensation. Um, and this is something uh, that, that we introduced last year uh, and that came out of talking to the community. Uh, and so, you know, again, I think uh, not just myself, but for my colleagues um, and for those of us that believe in a fair and just uh, criminal legal system, it is paramount that we lean into this and that we acknowledge that people are afraid, that there is fear and anxiety, and that there are things that we can be doing to help our victims uh, in, in, in a greater way. Uh, and that is what, again, I, I was hoping to do with that op-ed and, uh, and with some of our messaging going forward. So, Senator, do you, do you mind if I just rewind a little bit? Because we wanted to have you on the podcast about two months ago, and you were quite busy uh, because you were helping to usher through the John Lewis New York Voting Rights Act. Uh, and I had the pleasure of being there for the signing. And, you know, it's, I'm looking at a picture right now of you, Andrew Stewart-Cousins, Kathy Hochul, Hazel Dukes of the NAACP, and Latrice Walker. Um, and that day was really emotional for me uh, as someone who votes all the time. I take it very seriously. My grandparents weren't allowed to vote freely um, when they were growing up. My mom grew up in the segregated South uh, as well, and she's only 74. So for me, I, I take it very seriously that this is a, it's a, not only a right, but it's a privilege and opportunity for me to exercise um, sort of my greatest democratic uh, patriotism in a lot of ways, even though I have some really complicated thoughts about America as an American political science professor and a Black person and a, and a Black woman. But can you, 
I really wanted to have you on when that was happening uh, because some of, of your speech that day really did contextualize the importance of this act uh, and why it is that we kind of can't let our feet off the gas, even though we're New York and we don't, you know, it's like, well, we're not Texas and Arizona or Wisconsin or, you know, Pennsylvania. And, you know, we don't have total nutballs, but then we kind of do Lee Zeldin, right? I mean, like <laughs> we, we do actually have some, some out of pocket folks um, that are absolutely working against um, people of color. They're working against immigrants, they're working against women, they're working against incarcerated citizens. So can you just kind of rewind back to two months ago and what that felt like and the culmination of that work of you and your colleagues in Albany to make sure you protected the voting rights of New Yorkers across uh, the state. You you hit it right on the head, Dr. Greer. You know, the part of the difficulty in, in being in the state legislature in New York is uh, people think that we are the progressive capital of the nation and that we don't face some of the same obstacles that our, you know, friends and neighbors and other jurisdictions do. Um, particularly around voting. Uh, but I think that is in part due to us being in New York City, uh, where um, uh, where some of that stuff is not as prevalent. Um, although I will note that it was just in 2016 that uh, thousands of voters were purged from the rolls in Brooklyn. Um, uh, but we have seen some of the, 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 the egregious things that we call out in the South. We have seen that right here in the state of New York and there has been litigation to that effect for many, many years. Uh, a lot of people don't know that when the Voting Rights Act uh, was had some teeth uh, prior to 2013, uh, that there were jurisdictions in New York, in New York City, that were covered by the Voting Rights Act because they had a history of voter suppression and voter dilution. People don't know that in you know places like Rochester and um, the Capital Region recently, the attorney general has had to bring lawsuits to force board of elections to place poll sites in predominantly black neighborhoods. Uh, people don't know that school board elections throughout the state um, have historically uh, had low turnout uh, and have never, uh, in, in some places, had representatives that look like the communities that are within that jurisdiction. There are places in Long Island uh, where there is still some of those out-of-pocket people um, uh, where uh, there is straight up racist campaigning, uh, racist gerrymandering, uh, uh, racist approaches to the composition of the town boards, the village boards, um, all of the lo localities, the water districts, the sewer districts. Um, there is a lot happening uh, that we had to step in and say, in the absence of a federal strong law to, um, to stop certain election practices from happening, New York has to step in. Um, and that was what drove us to, to write the bill. Uh, we had really, really amazing partners uh, to, to help us get this across the line, NYCLU and NAACP um, uh, in uh, Latino Justice, uh, the Brennan Center. A lot of folks um, help, helped us to, to get this across the line. Uh, but as you saw, Dr. Greer, when we were there, one of the, the biggest things that hit me right in the chest uh, was when Hazel Dukes said of the government, the, the, the pen that the governor used to sign the bill, when she said she wanted that pen to be with her in her casket. Uh, and uh, that to me uh, was, uh, was- I lost it. That, yeah. I, that's when I lost it. I was like, oh, 
We're we're not playing here. We're not playing. Yeah. This was a, a a life highlight for me because, um, uh, as 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 many of the listeners know, I mean, Hazel Dukes is a titan uh, that 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 doesn't just talk about it. She was there in those fights at the height of the movement, um, and so I, I'm just proud to be to be associated with with this step forward. We're going to have to focus on implementation uh, as we go forward, but um, really an important example for the rest of the country that in a time where we couldn't, you know, reach agreement on the federal level to protect voting rights, that New York stepped up. So just for a little context for our listeners, Hazel Dukes, who's head of the NAACP, was born on March 17th, 1932 in Montgomery, Alabama. So to say that she's seen some things is the understatement of the century. Um, I want to shift gears ever so slightly because a lot of New Yorkers, especially our listeners, are really concerned about housing. We've talked about it. Uh, quite a bit on the podcast, you know, not just the the buying market, which seems to be out of control, but so many renters uh, are being pushed out, uh, not just of their their apartments and their neighborhoods, but many people are being pushed out of the city. Certain landlords are just, you know, jacking prices up astronomically. I see that you're a member of the Housing Construction and Community Development Committee. I also see that you're a member of the Social Services Committee. What are you all doing in Albany to help trickle down to New Yorkers who are struggling? I mean, we're talking lower class New Yorkers, working class New Yorkers, lower middle class, middle class, upper middle class, because in New York and, you know, the the nation more broadly, most people are a paycheck or two away from being homeless, realistically, or unhoused, um, even if they do make six figures. So what are you all talking about in Albany to make sure we sort of protect folks in this quasi-COVID space, but also when landlords are, are just, not all landlords are the same. Um, but some mom and pops and some people who own several buildings, I mean, they're like, I got to make money too. And I didn't make it during COVID. And so folks want to come back in the city and I, I and they want to pay these rents. I mean, we're hearing these crazy stories about, you know, a studio going for, you know, $4,000 and it has 60 people waiting in line, you know, to sort of sign up. So where are we, where are we now in Albany with this? Yeah, I think the, the short answer to that is that we're not doing enough. Um, I think we have I think we have taken uh, certain steps. I want to take us back to 2019 when we passed the Housing Stability Tenant and Protection Act, the HSTPA, uh, which applied uh, overwhelmingly to rent regulated units. Um, the, the reason that I'm starting with that is had we not passed the HSTPA, um, the eviction rates, uh, the eviction crisis that we're experiencing now uh, would be um, uh, just a orders of magnitude more devastating. Uh, and, and so I think we stabilized, you know, it's about a million in, in, in the city of New York, families that benefit from rent regulation, protection from, from eviction. Uh, but there are many more market rate individuals um, who don't benefit from that and who are at the whims of their landlords. And I think the steps that we took during the pandemic, um, the, the ERAP program, Emergency Rental Assistance Program, uh, was very helpful in helping people to stay in their homes. And I would uh, always take the opportunity to point out that that money didn't go to the tenants. Uh, that money went to landlords. Uh, there's this pervasive narrative that we haven't done anything um, uh, to assist landlords during this crisis. Uh, but that entire program was predicated on tenants applying and then the money going uh, to the landlords. But that pot of money was was finite. Um, uh, and now that the evictions have resumed, that housing court is back open, um, uh, for lack of a, a better phrase. Uh, we, are, we, we are seeing um, a sort of expedited 
um, uh, attempts to, to, to get people out. Um, so I think we got to do more. Uh, what, one of the things that uh, has uh, obviously gotten a lot of ink uh, is good cause um, uh, eviction. Um, I think that we have to continue that conversation. We had a hearing on it. Um, uh, it did not get across the finish line. I'm, um, I think that some version of good cause uh, uh, hopefully will, we, we can get done. Um, uh, but, but we also have to think about the new housing that is being built. Uh, another thing that did not, that was not tackled was, uh, the, the 421A tax credit. Um, you know, the, the governor had a proposal mm -hmm. to change it to 485W, um, that had some different formulas that, um, uh, I thought was a little too close to the old program. Um, uh, I think we need to think about the way that we incentivize development. Um, I am not anti-development. Uh, um, I am anti-predatory development, uh, where people in my community just last week, as I was doing my senator on your block, a woman said, I've been living in this apartment for 20 years and it's a private home. Uh, and I walk past these new buildings every single day that I cannot afford, that I cannot get into. I try to do housing, connect all sorts of things. Um, and so I would like to see in any tax incentive, um, something with deeper affordability that the folks in the immediate vicinity uh, uh, can afford. Um, and then I also think we need to do some direct assistance on homelessness. Um, and my colleague, Senator Kavanaugh, um, has done great work on uh, introducing a housing voucher program. Um, I think uh, there is a costly uh, endeavor, but one that I think would have an immediate impact um, and would help folks uh, who, who really need it at this time. Yeah, I mean, it, it is the huge issue now. I mean, it's not that it wasn't an issue before COVID, but it just feels now looking at rents, they're they're insane. And, and as Chrissy said, it's for everybody. So we just wanted, you know, one final question, and we do appreciate your time here. But you know, going back to crime, you know, the other big issue in the city, um, I guess this is a hypothetical question. I guess it was Mayor de Blasio who hated hypothetical questions. But for you, you know, you feel so passionately about this and you work so hard on it, but how would you convince someone who is afraid of crime and does not agree with you on where you stand about bail reform? Because I guess that's part of the dialogue in, in talking with people. So how would you, you know, speak to someone like that who's adamant that it all needs to be rolled back? Yeah, it's, it's not a hypothetical. I have constituents that uh, are steadfast in their belief and feeling that uh, bail reform is the source of crime uh, and that the only way to solve that is to roll to roll back what we did. Uh, I have multiple conversations with them. Um, you know, I really try to let the facts guide how I lead. Uh, and I take that principle into my conversations with them uh, to say, if, if I'm going to um, have a discussion about changing the law, it has to be based on facts and it has to be based on reality. Now, that's not to say uh, that your fear and your anxiety is not real or that it's not valid. Um, those things are real and valid, and we can talk about um, uh, uh, ways that, 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 that we can help folks feel safer taking the train uh, or going about their daily lives. Um, uh, but I think that it is a leader's job to tell people what they need to hear and not what they want to hear. Um, and it would be very easy for me to change stripes uh, when talking to opponents of bail reform in my district as opposed to people who support it. Uh, but I really view my responsibility as being honest uh, with my community being transparent. And if folks don't uh, agree with me always, that's okay. Um, if they agreed with me 100% of the time, that would also be very weird. And, <laughs> um, uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I really try to talk through hard issues. It, it, it is, it's difficult because if we had 
a singular solution to crime, uh, it would have been exercised already. Uh, we would have done that already. Uh, this is not a new issue. This is an issue that we've been dealing with for time immemorial. Uh, so it is always going to be a complex thing to discuss and, uh, and, and feelings are, are around it are always going to be fraught. Uh, but I think context, facts, and, and, and empathy for how people feel and what they've been through should lead the conversation. Well, before we let you get out of here, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, what are you all working on and what are you specifically working on in Albany that we should be paying attention to? So one of the um, uh, uh, tragedies of the pandemic uh, was that our community suffered disproportionately from it. Uh, and a large responsibility can be for, for that is the comorbidities that we suffered, um, uh, whether that be hypertension, obesity, uh, those rates are disparate in, in my district, um, in communities that look like mine. Uh, so I really want to start um, uh, speaking more to our public health issues and what we can do to prepare our communities for the next pandemic. Um, you know, we're sort of in a couple of pandemics right now, um, and I don't think that we are learning the lessons uh, that, that we need to. And uh, part of that is um, I think that people prey on our community. Uh, there is a predatory nature of advertising of junk food um, and things that are unhealthy for us. Uh, and uh, I want to go after those guys that are making money off of our debt, frankly. Uh, and so we have introduced a Predatory Marketing Prevention Act. Um, that is something I'm going to be trying to uh, push through the, the legislature next term. Um, I'm going to be doing some more stuff around our air quality uh, and environmental justice. I'm a lifelong asthmatic. Um, and when we talk to communities that look like mine, oftentimes when we're talking about climate change, um, uh, it's not as engaging. Uh, but when we talk about the immediacy of, well, do you have asthma or do you know someone that has asthma? Everybody in that room, that hand goes up. Uh, and my goal is to bridge those two principles to say, actually, it's related. What's happening with our climate, what's happening with our environment and the immediate uh, 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 health implications for it. Uh, that disproportionately affect us. Uh, so we're going to be we're going to be stepping into that as well. And of course, I cannot leave here without mentioning Clean Slate, um, uh, which is just uh, to me would be a phenomenal jobs bill. Uh, there's so many people locked out of the economy now uh, simply because they have a conviction record. They have paid their dues. Uh, they have done what they've needed to do. They've remained crime free, but can't get housing can't get financial aid for school, and can't get employment because of that conviction record. We passed it in the Senate uh, this past session, and uh, hopefully next year we'll have it across the line in the Assembly as well. Thank you so much. There's a lot, to, I guess, a lot to look for. When do you guys head back up to Albany? There's a lot to look out for. That's right. So I'm, I'm, I'm very glad to be back home in Brooklyn uh, uh, now, and so I'm not trying to rush back to Albany, <laughs> uh, uh, but I do look forward to us um, uh, getting back into it so we can do some good stuff for the community. And there's election night. Uh, you don't have a challenger, but I, I guess we'll still have a, an election night party regardless. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm, th these are, these are the, the most fun elections where I get to just watch what's happening uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and get to digest it. So I look forward to tuning in uh, to, to the coverage that uh, the Yacht will be providing. Thank you so much. We are talking to my state senator, 
Zellner Myrie, who's joining us again on FAQ. And just so you know, FAQ NYC is a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Artists, and Critics. You can find us online at thebrick.house. We're headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University. And we recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. Special thank you to our guest, State Senator Zellner Myrie from Brooklyn. Adam Kamara mixed and edited this week's episode. Thank you all for listening. Be kind, be safe, be cool in this heat. And we will see you all back on the evening of August 23rd, election night. F-A-Q. F-A-Q.